Hello and welcome back to the Happy Dog Podcast. Last week we looked at classical conditioning. So that is conditioning that happens without really putting any effort in at all. And this week we're looking at more operant conditioning. And that is how we teach and learn things. Teaching to our dogs, to people, anyone. It's also quite a controversial topic in dog training and it causes a massive divide between those who use aversives in dog training and those huge rewards. So basically the difference between the carrot and the stick. So let's get a coffee and let's get into it. is learning that my actions have consequences. How does my behaviour affect what happens to me? Operant conditioning has several different names, including instrumental learning, Skinnerian conditioning, um, who, which is named after the researcher who did the initial studies um, on this kind of learning. But I'm going to be using operant conditioning as it tends to be more conventional um, because the behaviour operates on or has an effect on the animal's world. Instrumental conditioning is called that because the animal is instrumental in learning something. Fundamentally, no matter the name, operant conditioning is about learning that your actions have consequences, good or bad. I think about it like the carrot and the stick. And we all know by now that I much prefer using the carrot in dog training rather than the stick. The carrot can be simple. It's a reinforcement, a treat, sitting on a comfortable bed, or it can be complicated such as completing exams to gain a scholarship, although this is a pretty human experience. Not sure dogs would care or indeed understand the relationship between the two. So before we get onto the nuts and bolts of operant conditioning, we need to get into the background of how animals learn. And this is known as the law of effect. The law of effect was first coined by Thorndike, who describes it as the general principle that behaviours that have a desirable outcome tend to become more frequent over time. These behaviours, those behaviours that have an undesirable behaviour, occur less frequently. So that is that voluntary behaviour is driven by its effect, or the outcome or consequence of that behaviour is. It makes sense, doesn't it? Why would we repeat behaviours that give unfavourable consequences? We go to work because we get paid. We stop at red lights so we don't crash. We exercise to keep healthy. We use oven gloves so we don't burn our hands. The child tidies their room for some extra pocket money. These consequences can be situational. We might exceed the speed limit to get where we are going quicker, but slow down when we see a policeman. I'm not saying I do that, just as an example. So this is a good example of situational cues. Maybe you're driving along and someone flashes their lights on a dual carriageway at you from the other side of the road. Now, I'm not saying you should do this, but might make you think that there's a policeman up ahead with a speed camera. It might just make you slow down a little bit. It's going to be situational because you'll decide whether to accelerate or not. Another example is a red or green traffic light. These are situational cues that decide if you're going to accelerate to move on through a green light or brake to stop at a red light. This situational cue is known as an antecedent. This comes before the behaviour and then there is a consequence afterwards. And it's called the ABC of behaviour, 
antecedent behaviour consequence. It forms the basis of all training and behaviour work I do with dogs, and if I'm honest, probably with my child too. With a traffic light example, the red light is the antecedent, the brake is the behaviour, and the consequence is that I don't crash. If the antecedent is a green light, then the behaviour will be pressing the accelerator, and the consequence is that the person behind me doesn't beep because I've stopped their green light. There are so many other factors included in this, but I'm aware that in a podcast, sometimes going in a little bit too much depth can get a little bit confusing without some graphics to support it. So maybe I'll look at doing a webinar on this if people are interested in the future. Might be able to get into things in a little bit more depth. Add in a few other elements to the ABC, which are quite important. Okay, so now let's get into the nitty gritty of operant conditioning or the quadrant, as it's commonly known. Now, if you're a trainer and you know about this, I know that the idea of a quadrant has fallen out of favour a little bit because it's not just four parts to it. There are other things going on as well. But I really think it's a good place to start and it's a really interesting place to to lay out the op- the way that dog training has got this opposition. So imagine a square and now divide it equally into four parts, like a cross in the middle. So this is your quadrant and you're going to have positive reinforcement in one of the small squares, negative reinforcement in the square next to it. And then below that, you're going to have positive punishment in one of the squares and negative punishment in the other. If you're a visual person, hopefully that's helped a little bit. Okay, so the terms. Last week's terms were complicated. This week's are complicated, but not quite as much. So the first thing to remember is that reinforcement and punishment are terms that relate to the effect it has on the behaviour rather than the, the, the way you may necessarily think about it. So reinforcement means that the behaviour increases in frequency in the future and punishment means that the behaviour decreases in frequency in the, in the future. So if something is reinforced, we're going to see that behaviour occurring more and more and more in the future, just like Thorndike's law of effect. If something is punished, we should see a decrease in that behaviour. Slightly more complicated are the terms positive and negative. They do not mean good or bad. Positive, think of it more mathematically. Positive means something's added. So if you think of the plus sign, positive, something is added. And negative means something is taken away, like a negative, uh, a minus sign. It's not good or bad. Don't, that is, that will, that's where I first got tripped up on this. I used to think of it as being kind of like positive reinforcement is good, but positive punishment is definitely not good. So I always think of it like a plus sign, R, plus sign, P. So I know that something is being added and to increase the likelihood of behaviour or added to decrease the likelihood of behaviour rather than good or bad. Right, let's start with my favourite, positive reinforcement. This is goes on the logic that something is added to increase the likelihood of a behaviour happening again in the future. So really, you're going to be adding something nice, aren't you? You're going to be adding a treat. You're going to be adding some praise. You're going to be adding some social interaction. You're going to be adding in water. You're going to be adding in something that the animal wants, desires or needs to increase the likelihood of the behaviour happening again in the future. There are loads of examples of this. I use this. I try to use this as my primary form of um, dog training. 
um, whenever I can. So I ask a dog to sit. The cue, sit, is the antecedent. The behaviour is the bum being put on the floor. And the consequence is that they get a treat. So that's your ABC. I've positively, really, positively reinforced it because when I ask for it the next time, there's a higher likelihood of it happening. For us, there are loads. We go to work, we get paid. Humans can deal with um, a delay in reinforcement, dogs not so much. So we can see this with children all the time. Reward charts, you tidy your room, you get a sticker. So the cue is go tidy your room. The behavior is tidying the room. The consequence is pocket money, reward sticker, chocolate bar, whatever their reinforcement is. It is really worth noting that reinforcement is really dog specific. What is reinforcing to one dog is not going to be reinforcing to another. So for example, my two dogs, my spaniel would be reinforced by being allowed to go into water. My pointer would not. <laughs> he would actively avoid that. So each dog's um, reinforcement, the thing that they want is going to be different. So just bear that in mind. It's not equal throughout all dogs. I think positive reinforcement, because we use it so much in dog training, is fairly straightforward. So I don't want to dwell on it for too long. I really want to get into the nitty gritty of the other parts of reinforce of the quadrant. of. So negative reinforcement, negative meaning something is removed to increase the likelihood of a behaviour happening again in the future. So you would generally think in this term, of something being removed that the dog doesn't like. So if you perform a behavior, I'll remove that horrible thing. So again, I'm not telling you about all my terrible, illegal, dangerous driving practices, but if I was on private land and I hadn't quite put my seatbelt on before I set off, my car beeps at me, as I'm sure everyone's car does now. If I put my seatbelt on, the annoying beeping sound goes away. So that makes it more likely in the future that I will put my seatbelt on. So the removal of that aversive, that annoying beeping sound, increases the likelihood that I will wear my seatbelt in the future. This one I think is a little bit more complex than positive reinforcement because a lot of the time we have to add the aversive in in some way before we can remove it. So it it crosses the line a lot between positive punishment, which we're going to come on to next, and negative reinforcement. There's pressure applied somewhere, it's removed, the behaviour increases. I don't use negative reinforcement if I can help it, because it often means that the dog is put into a situation where there is something that they don't like, and they are acting to remove that. So I want to try and avoid putting a dog into a stressful, aversive situation at all costs. However, sometimes removing an aversive such as another dog who happens to be on a walk and the dog, our dog displays calm behaviour rather than aggressive behaviour and then that other dog goes away, we've, the dog's behaviour in the future is more likely to be calm because calm behaviour removes the other dog. It's the same as if your dog lunges and barks at a dog in the presence and then the other dog goes away. Their lunging and barking behaviour 
the consequence to that is that the dog goes away. So they've removed the aversive from the environment. So next time they see a dog that is scary, they lunge and bark. So the antecedent is the seeing another dog. The behavior is lunging and barking. And the consequence is that the scary dog goes away. All making sense? Easier than last week. <laughs> okay, let's look at punishment. So punishment is where we're trying to decrease a behavior happening in the future. Positive punishment is where we add something aversive to the dog to reduce the likelihood of a behavior occurring again in the future. This is my least favorite of all of the quadrants because I never want to introduce an aversive to my dog if I can do anything in my power to stop it. So examples would be shouting at a dog if they bark. It would be um, shouting at a dog if they peed in the house. Oh, Donnelly's arrived. I don't know if you heard that. Um, it would be rubbing a dog's nose in pee if they peed in the house. It would be smacking them on the bum if they didn't go into a sit. It would be um, using a prong collar. if So if they walk in the wrong place, they get a sharp yank and pressure put through their collar. It would be um, the use of an electric shock collar if the dog didn't respond to a recall cue. It would be the use of an electric shock collar if the dog chased prey. I'm not going to go into this in loads of detail because in subsequent episodes, I'm going to do a whole episode on why positive punishment should not be used in dog training as much as possible. I'm not saying that... It cannot be used. I'm not saying that it's not effective because all four quadrants are equally effective, which is why they're equally spaced on a quadrant. What I am saying is ethically and from a welfare point of view, there are three other ways which are probably more ethical. One is very much more ethical and has a higher um, is higher for the dog's welfare. Um there's one just slightly below that and then two that I would try and avoid so what I don't want to say is that positive punishment doesn't work it does it just isn't an ethical stance to take so I want to go into it in a lot more detail because I really want people to understand and I think I talked about this in the last episode about people being able to watch tv shows and being able to watch social media dog trainers and be able to see in that training situation and training scenario, the potential fallout, good or bad, from that training style. And if we don't, if I don't teach people to be able to critically evaluate other people's dog training styles, I am failing as a dog trainer. And so I'm not the kind of dog trainer that just says, use positive reinforcement, and then that's it. I'm very much that I need and want people to understand why we do it in a certain way and why I choose that over other ways without getting too deep and philosophical about it. So the last of the quadrants is negative punishment. Now, this almost sounds like the worst of all of the quadrants, but actually we use this a lot. This is my, as positive reinforcement, this is probably the, like, the next one that I would use. So negative means that we are taking something away and punishment means that we are reducing the likelihood of behaviour happening again. So we're probably going to take something away that the dog quite likes, like attention, 
a puppy nips you and you remove your hand away from them. A dog jumps up at you and you don't engage with them. Um, it, it's very much about your dog does something undesirable to you at that time. Um, and a lot of the time it's attention that we remove. I'm not a big fan of the timeouts. Sometimes they are effective if a dog needs to calm. Sometimes the more you engage with them, the, the worse they get. So, um, but this is more about, you know, when a dog jumps up, we just take a step back and maybe turn ourselves to the side. That's negative punishment. We're removing the thing that the dog wants. So in the future, they're less likely to jump up. Now, I generally always pair this with something positive reinforcement. So a dog doesn't jump up, I give them attention or I might give them a treat. Um, so I'm doing kind of a bit of both, like balancing it. Like I will ignore you if you jump up. I will give you what you want, attention, if you don't jump up. So the dog goes, ah, actually, better off standing. Not a big fan of a sit for saying hello. Dogs, don't know if you've noticed, they never like go to each other and sit. And if they do, it's because they're not sure. So just they just need to stand. Maybe they can give you a little sniff. That's quite normal dog behaviour. So we really want to balance this. We can't just take attention away and give dogs no understanding of what they should be doing we want to say we don't like that but we do like this so it sounds bad but actually we all do it all the time okay let's have a little think about reinforcers what are they well they can literally be anything anything that your dog wants is going to be a reinforcer food is one i use heavily and there's a few reasons for that one it's easy you can carry so many treats with you, primula cheese, Arden Grange liver pate, you name it. If your dog likes to eat it, that's a reinforcer. We can use play. I'm a big fan of using toys in training. We can use access to water, whether that's a drink. Now, we don't want to deny them of water. I'm just, what I'm saying, I, I, personally, I wouldn't have dogs work to have a drink because I feel like that is unethical. I'm just saying that they are reinforcers. More so with waters, it's the ability to go and play in it. Think about a Labrador, like desperate to go and run. They check in with you, you tell them they can go and have a swim. That's a reinforcer. Access to play with conspecifics, so that's other dogs. Access to resting places. My dog has um, commandeered my spaniel. She's 11, she gets away with murder. Uh, she's commandeered a blanket that we have in the... Um, lounge it's like on a coffee table on a lower like the shelf underneath the table and she sits and stares at it and so I'll get her the blanket out so she's positively reinforced for staring at the blanket and I feel like I have been trained in the process uh ability to be off the lead sex is a big reinforcer ability to sniff ability to chase all of these things are things that the dog wants and so they're reinforcing we can be given these, sorry, these can be given to the dog, they can be removed from the dog, or they can be denied from the dog now. Again, drinking water, just using it as an example, not as a something you should do. So let's have a think about your dog and what their reinforcers are so we can use the right one at the right time. My dogs are both hugely food driven, so I can use food for training all of the time. With Millie, my spaniel, probably her ball will trump food. Um, so the ability to chase her ball is a huge reinforcer. The ability to swim is a huge reinforcer for her. For Stan, it's a little bit more about chasing things. So he does like to chase the herons that we see on our walks. Not that he has got a hope in hell of catching it, but if he sees one, he does enjoy it. Um, 
he does not like water that's not reinforcing to him he does not like playing with the ball that's not reinforcing to him his main one is food he will play with a toy but it's not a high drive reinforcer he will play i don't think he would work to do it so you might think like how can we use some of these how can you use chasing a heron for example as uh how can that be used appropriately in dog training so actions such as play with other dogs swimming sniffing they don't seem to be obvious, but they are such a strong reinforcer. For example, um, Stanley has to check with me first before he can chase the heron. So I just, for the cue is off you go and he has to just look at me first. So we started that on a long line. If he didn't look at me, I didn't let him chase. If he looks at me, he can chase. It just means if it's not safe um, or I think that the heron's going to be stressed by it or anything like that, Um that I can I can prevent him from doing it. You have to remember that this is two-sided. So as much as we can use these reinforcers in the wild for what we as part of our training program. So yes, you can go and play with that dog, but only if you check in with me first. Equally, they are going to be reinforcers whether we utilize them a lot, a lot of the time. Play with another dog is a reinforcer, whether we've used it appropriately or not so if you've got a dog running off and playing with another dog and you're there having a fenton moment spido come here screaming at your dog or blowing on your whistle and your dog doesn't come back to you they are being reinforced at that moment for hearing the whistle so hear the whistle that's your antecedent behavior is play with another dog and the consequences continue to play with that other dog and this is where your recall can completely fall apart so remember, at the beginning, we talked about Thorndike's law of effect. What gets rewarded gets repeated. If your dog is repeating a behaviour and you don't want something, and so ignoring your recall cue, then you've got to remember you've got to prevent the behaviour from happening in the in the in the, in the you've got to prevent the behaviour happening in the first place. If they're playing with another dog, there's no point using your cue at that time because what are you actually reinforcing? You're reinforcing play with another dog and ignoring your recall cue. And that whistle then be, means carry on doing what you're doing and it weakens it over time. So if your dog's playing with another dog and you want them back, the best thing you can do at that time is to just go and get them or let the play fizzle out itself, depending on the situation. But we can use this to our advantage. We can use these high probability behaviours such as play with another dog to reward low probability behaviours like come away. This is called the pre-mac principle. Ever told a child that if they eat their vegetables, they can have pudding? Eating pudding, high probability behaviour in our house. Eating vegetables, pretty low probability behaviour in our house. So I can use the pudding as a reward for eating the vegetables. We can use this for our dogs too. You want to go and play with that dog? Come check in with me first. Want to go and sniff? Come and sit in a middle position before you go, just so I can check the environment first. So what we have to remember when it comes to what, what we're using to train our dogs is that sometimes we're going to have full control over the environment and sometimes we're not. And if we haven't got full control over the environment or the environment is too difficult for our dogs to work in, so reinforcers are everywhere and not on us. So if you've got a dog that's not particularly food driven, but is hugely driven by interacting with other dogs, the reinforcer of play with other dogs is going to be more reinforcing than come and get a treat off me. 
So we have to manage our environments so that we have more control over reinforcers. If you don't want your dog running off to the water, but you don't have anything to reinforce not running to the water behaviours, how are you going to manage that behaviour? Could you use a long line? Could you maybe let them have a paddle if they engage with you first? So when we think about the four quadrants, what we have to think about is which one is most appropriate to our dog? Trust me, it's not positive punishment. What's most most appropriate at that time? What do you have available to you? What is the dog's learning history? And which is going to win in a battle? So if you've got a high probability behaviour, such as running off to to see another dog, then we can utilise that. We just have to be a little bit strategic about how we do it. There's no point taking a dog, letting it off the lead and then being amazed that it runs off and plays with every dog without any control whatsoever. We want to use the environment as much as we can to train our dogs. But how we do that is through careful management of it and setting our dog up to succeed. That is how using the four quadrants to our advantage will help us. So as always, I hope that made sense. Um, If you've got any questions, your best place really is Instagram. It's at pooches.galore or you can Facebook message me. It's uh, facebook.com forward slash poochesgalore. If you found this helpful, please like and share. If you could leave us a review, it would be amazing. Um, Next week, we are talking more about the fallout of punishment. So we're getting into the nitty gritty as to why I don't advocate for the use of positive punishment in dog training. Um, It's just got so many fallout areas we don't use it for children anymore so the dog training world really needs to catch up i hope you enjoyed and i can't wait to speak to you next week (laughs) 